And please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. That's our scripture reading, and then our sermon passage is Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke 1, 26 to 38. But first, our scripture reading, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now turning to Luke Chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was David, of the house of, uh, name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And it's the reading of God's most holy and inspired and infallible and inerrant word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we again thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for what we have read. We thank you for Christ's interaction toward the end of his life with the Pharisees and the ways in which he not only instructed them, but dumbstruck them, Lord, because they were unable to answer his simple questions about how David could call his offspring his Lord. Lord, we are thankful that your word further explains uh, what was said in the Old Testament. We find explanation for so much in the Old and the New. And so we're thankful for this portion that we read from uh, not only Matthew, but also from Luke. We are grateful, Lord, that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the great promise that you gave to David that his heir would sit on the throne forever. We're thankful that he really and truly is the fulfillment of all of your Old Testament promises. Everything that you promised in the Old Testament, even the sacrificial system, it all points to him. And Lord, we who look back upon his first advent, we eagerly await his second. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember Christ Jesus and to look for his coming. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Now in that passage from Matthew 22, we read about how Jesus, who essentially had been on trial by the Pharisees and the Sadducees since he had cleansed the temple back in chapter 21, he turned the tables on them and he began to examine them. You might say this was his cross-examination of the Pharisees. Those religious leaders had peppered him with question after question. They were hoping to entangle him in his words, as chapter 22, verse 15 says. But then beginning in chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus began questioning them. And in verses 41 to 46, Jesus quoted Psalm 110, a psalm that only makes sense if the long-awaited Messiah is the Son of God in human flesh. How else could David, the greatest king Israel had ever known, refer to the Messiah as my Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1? There was no human being in Israel who was superior to David, not, not before him, not after him. And Jesus used this simple verse to show to the Pharisees and to us that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate, is Jesus Christ himself, the eternal Son of God. Well, this morning's passage in Luke, it helps us to further understand the advent of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. How did he get here? And why did he come? As we work our way through the passage this morning, I would ask you to consider this thought. God's Son, begotten from all eternity, took up human flesh, being born of a virgin, to cover the sins of his people. Again, God's Son, begotten from all eternity, took up human flesh, being born of a virgin, to cover the sins of his people. The sermon has two points. The first is the favored one, and the second, the virgin birth. Once again, the first point is the favored one, the second, the virgin birth. So let's take a look at this first point of the sermon now, the favored one. In the first half of Luke chapter 1, Luke writes about the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist and about his father Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple. And while Zechariah was carrying out his priestly duties in the temple, Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him and he told him that his wife, Elizabeth, would conceive and bear a son in her old age. Zechariah, he's full of doubt. He doesn't think there's any way that this is possible. He questioned how this could possibly take place. And he asked for a sign to prove it, since he and his wife were well beyond childbearing age, and she had been considered barren for many, many years. And in response, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the angel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel told Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would experience a miracle of Old Testament proportions, similar to Sarah's and Hannah's pregnancies, but Zechariah didn't believe. And he asked for a sign. And as the requested sign of the truth of Gabriel's words, Zechariah was made unable to speak until their son was born. That's really all it took for Zechariah. He couldn't speak, and as soon as he was able to, he praised the Lord, and he told the people what Gabriel had said. The same angel, Gabriel, was six months later, later appeared to, uh, to Elizabeth's kinswoman, Mary, to tell her of an even greater miracle that was about to happen. We're told in chapter 1, verse 26, that Gabriel was sent from God to a little-known Galilee uh, town called Nazareth. 
An angel who stands in the presence of God was now standing before a young woman, a virgin, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And Luke says in verse 27 that the virgin's name was Mary. That's an anglicized version of the Greek name Miriam, which most likely means excellence. Luke also says that Joseph is of the house of David, an important detail, especially in light of our scripture reading from Matthew 22. William Hendrickson and others argue based on Matthew's and Luke's genealogies that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David. In verse 28, Gabriel speaks to this young woman and he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this is the passage from which comes the Roman Catholic prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace. Gabriel certainly greets Mary, so hail, that's an appropriate translation of the first word. However, the word in the prayer translated full of grace is a passive word in the original, meaning that Mary is a recipient of grace, not a bestower or, or giver of grace as the Catholics believe. She received God's grace, but she doesn't give it out. She's not the the giver of grace the way that God is. Now, when Gabriel greets her, verse 29 says that Mary was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. But Gabriel, rather than rebuking for her for being troubled by his words, he comforts her. In verse 30, he tells her, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. And the phrase you have found favor in this context means you have received God's unmerited grace. It's clear there in the text and the original that it's not that Mary had done something to deserve God's grace. That's not grace. She had found favor, meaning that God had set his love upon her. That he had appointed her to be the one for this very Uh, special task. Because she has found favor with God, she has no reason to fear Gabriel's words to her. In verse 31, Gabriel announces to Mary what he has been sent to say. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the wording here is very similar to Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 but not identical to it. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord will get, himself will give you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel." But Gabriel continues in verses 32 and 33, "He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." Zechariah was told in verses 16 and 17 that his son John would go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. John was to go before the Lord their God, but Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High, and God will give to him the throne of his father David. John the Baptist was called to go before Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus had come to ascend the throne of David. He was the long-awaited king who would rule forever. He was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David way back in 2 Samuel 7. But there was only one way for the eternal Son of God who is coexistent, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit to be born of a woman and become the God-man Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, the virgin birth. Mary asks the pertinent question to Gabriel in verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary perhaps thought that what Gabriel said was supposed to apply to a son conceived by ordinary means. 
She had no ability to anticipate what Gabriel would say next. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel makes it clear to Mary that this child would not be conceived in her marriage to Joseph. It would be a supernatural conception because the child born would be the Son of God. He would be called holy because he would be utterly without sin. He would not inherit the sin of Adam because using the language of the Shorter Catechism, Jesus did not descend from Adam by ordinary generation. This is why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so central to our doctrine of Christ. In order to save man, he had to be completely, totally God and completely, totally man. The one who would save his people from their sins must himself be sinless. He would be the unblemished, spotless lamb who would be offered up as the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people. The only way that this was possible was to be conceived by God the Spirit and born of a virgin. Now the angel anticipates Mary's uncertainty about what he has said. It would have seemed incredible to her, too much for her to believe. And so in verse 36, he gives her a reason to believe what he's told her. He's given her a sign And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. If Mary needs proof of what Gabriel has told her will take place, she need only to seek out her relative Elizabeth to see what God was capable of doing. Mary had asked, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And Gabriel tells her in verse 37 that nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing was impossible with God regarding Elizabeth and Zechariah. Nothing is impossible with God regarding Mary and this virgin birth. Now this is a very important point for us to remember. There are many people who struggle with believing in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There may be some of you here today who are questioning it. I don't, I don't think this is possible. Scientifically speaking, how could this happen? And so for many people, this miracle is simply too much to accept. But let me ask you this question. If the virgin birth of Christ is too much for God to accomplish, then what does that say about God? If God cannot cause a virgin birth to take place, then God is not God. If he can't defy the the so-called laws of science, if he can't do that which is supernatural in the natural realm, then he's not a god to be worshipped. He doesn't have true and ultimate power. By definition, God is able to do that which we think is impossible. Otherwise, he would not be God. If it's impossible for God to perform the miracle of the virgin birth, then any other miracle is impossible. Why would you believe in any other? If you can't believe, you don't believe, you won't believe in the virgin birth. Our salvation is impossible if the virgin birth of Christ is impossible. You remember that in Matthew 19, the rich man there, he went away sorrowful, when Jesus commanded him to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. The disciples were surprised when Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 19, verse 25, the disciples asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus responded to them in verse 26, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If the virgin birth to your way of thinking is an impossibility, then your own salvation is just as much an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible. 
Nothing will be impossible for God. If God can cause an elderly barren Elizabeth to conceive and give birth to John the Baptist, he can just as easily cause Mary to conceive and give birth to Jesus. And he does not need a human man to do it. You have to think about this. It is odd in our own society that we're constantly told, we're barraged with messages about how we have no limits to us. We can do whatever our mind sets itself upon. There is no glass ceiling for anyone anymore. That's that's the message that we're being told. We can do whatever we want. We can be whoever we want. While at the same time, our society places every kind of limit upon God. The truth is, we have limits. God doesn't. The only limits he has are the ones that he set upon himself in the ways that he made covenants with his people. Now, if Mary doubted this earlier when she questioned how this would happen, she seems not to doubt any longer. Verse 38 says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And we read there that the angel departed from her. Not because of any virtue in herself, Mary was chosen to give birth to his son, God's son. She was a sinner just like we are. She did not have an immaculate conception in the way that Jesus, her son, did. She was a sinner. But her sin, Adam's guilt, it was not transmitted to Jesus by virtue of of Jesus being born of her. Because of God's choice, her life would be forever altered. She would know inexpressible joy. She would know excruciating pain because of the son she would bear. She would have the joy of holding her baby in her arms. The joy of watching him grow and mature. Knowing, knowing all the while that he is the son of God she's holding in her arms. But she would also see him die a death he did not deserve. So that she and everyone else who believes in Jesus would have eternal life. She would have her heart pierced. Seeing her son pierced. But she doesn't know any of this at this point in her life. But she did know what Gabriel had just told her about the conception of her baby. And she simply accepts what Gabriel says. I am the servant of the Lord. She accepted the impossible with a childlike faith. And we, brothers and sisters, are called to do no less. We are called to put our faith in Jesus Christ. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save his people from their sins, then believing in his virgin birth, it's not so difficult. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And he came to save sinners. He was born so that our sins would be covered, atoned for, by the perfect sacrifice of his death. And he was willing to do this, not because you and I are worthy, not because anyone whom he came to save was worthy, not because we merited it. He came to save us out of pure mercy, compassion. His salvation is offered to us as a free gift of grace. He was willing to do what many say is impossible so that sinful people who believe in him could live with him forever. That, brothers and sisters, is good news.